When there is a bad outcome, somebody does have to pay. These guys can hire anybody. You know that people will say anything for the proper amount of money. Once you've destroyed your reputation, who cares how many times you do it over and over yeah, it's again? The world's oldest profession. The bottom line is, you can be wrong with that. Did the doc say there was nothing wrong, or did the doc say we didn't find anything? So my message here is do not despair. There is hope. All of us in emergency medicine are ADHD or ADD. We want to get it going, get it done, get it moved. There's always another issue. We do need to get your medication level adjusted here, Gregory. Okay. Ricky, where are we today? Hey, Greg, nice to talk with you. This is the July issue of Risk Management Monthly. We are in room 2452 of the uh, Marriott Marquis here in uh, Times Square. 46th and Broadway. We're opening on Broadway. How can you beat it? There's no business like show business. Oh, Jesus. It sounds like he's a little under-medicated today. Um, All right. We're going to do the July issue with you. We got a uh, a special guest. We're here doing the Emergency Medical Abstracts course. Right, right. Okay, okay. Yes, that's what. That's why we're in town, and we're having a fabulous uh, course. We get like two hundred twenty people. World record for yeah. New York. Anything? Any of you who are listening, we have room for a few more. So come on down. <laughs> Not this year, we don't. No. And our special guest this. Uh, month is uh, Dr. Al Sacchetti. Oh, we're not worthy. Yeah, Again, the, we're not worthy, Ricky. Al is uh, one of the faculty of our course and has been doing this since we first met when you did a course with me in Atlantic City probably 20 years ago. That would be correct. 20 years in Atlantic City. And uh, I remember that course. It was a, a disaster, an utter disaster. We've <laughs> never been back to Atlantic City, I don't think. Maybe... <laughs> Maybe one time. Yeah, but from your perspective, it was a disaster. For me, it was a, it was tremendous. I got to meet you. I got to meet the rest of your faculty. And we've been friends ever since. And so uh, Al's really unusual, uh, very unusual. We're going to go into that just because we're here in New York. <laughs> Be nice. No, no. Al is a pit doc. He is a pit doc and has always been a pit doc. Yes, he has some academic titles, but he really never shows up there. Uh, he's at Our Lady of the Lord's Hospital in Camden, New Jersey, yeah. uh, where he is now the director. He has also been the chief of staff at the hospital, which is reflecting a trend where emergency physicians are now being allowed to be chief of staff. I re- I, I'm from the generation where they would never let a hospital-based doctor be the uh, chief of staff because they were in the pocket of administration. Uh, at least that was the lingo. But here is a community doctor who has published 75 papers, including 10 book chapters, and is on 10 editorial boards. So here, this is the consummate blending of academia with clinical practice. And although you do have a, a, an appointment at Jefferson, don't you? Yep. yep. You, don't, you're not, you don't really go there or anything uh, they, like that. They don't like it when I go there. <laughs> <laughs> they, they prefer I stay on my side of the river. On the yeah, other yeah, side yeah. of the yeah. river. Over they, they, they'll send their residents to us, but they... They like to keep us out of there. It kind of brings down their prestige when we show up. Well, yeah. now we've solved the town and gown conflict. This is we the have ultimate. intellectual greatness yeah. with <laughs> day-to-day clinical care. I love it. All right, guys. The, these folks aren't, aren't wanting to hear this. They, they well, hear. We, are, we're, we have to establish your credibility. That you're, you're, it's, you got to say something now because when they hear you talk, they're going to wonder why you're on the damn I mean, that's yeah, true. It's that's an true. honor <laughs> to be asked here. I mean, we, we have the likes of Jim Roberts. I mean – who used to be your professor, by yes, the way. Yes, he taught me. At Medical College yep. of Pennsylvania. Yeah, but it's I, I, I do 
mean to say that I am humbled to be on this tape with you two. So, <laughs> and also, I'm going to say this: you are a thought leader for MCare, which is the largest ER contracting group in the country. Yes, yes, and you, you clearly is one of their thought leaders, and they're they're better off for them. <laughs> All right, so let's get started. Last month, we had this concentration on one clinical entity. Spinal epidural abscesses. Interestingly enough, here at the course, uh, there's an attendee who is fighting a lawsuit. And what is the diagnosis? Spinal epidural abscess. When you talk to this doctor, this doctor did everything right and is still being sued. Uh, reflecting the fact that when there's a bad outcome, you know, uh, that in, a, in, it, in, in its own is enough to trigger a suit when the outcomes are really, really bad and somebody's being now wheeled in a wheelchair. This is a, another drug-seeking person, I, shooting, I, you know, IV, IV drug user who is now a multimillionaire. Well, just understand that uh, some famous person once said, show me the money. And I think that's exactly what the question is here. When there is a bad outcome, somebody does have to pay. I think it's interesting that uh, to find that occasionally a state will actually join will or enjoin a suit saying, we don't care who wins, but if there's money won, here are the bills that we, the state, have actually paid in this health care debate. In Michigan now, where I'm located, uh, they actually look at each county at all cases filed to see whether there's Medicare, Medicaid, other state monies that may have been involved in these things. And so the state becomes the new party in the lawsuit just to get the cash, or their percentage of the cash, which is one. Uh, Greg, this issue is um, going to be a little different from last month. We got it. We're going to do a little smorgasbord of stuff this month. We're not going to focus on one clinical entity like we did. Uh, we're going to review some uh, um, important cases that you have for yes. us. We're also going to do a little stuff on some hot topics that we got from Sandy Mahan. Our, um, kind of, she's become our advisor, actually. She's with Beta Health Pro Insurance, the largest insurer of emergency physicians in the state of California, yes. which I am a client. It's like the hair club for men. Yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And um, we got some listeners' letters as well. Yes, we do. Before we get into your cases, however, um, I found something interesting in the uh, May 17th issue of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, one of the more uh, reputable uh, medical publications, I may add. Um, well, certainly read by a lot of physicians. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the point that they were making is that, and the reason I'm including this, I think it's important, is because we often get discouraged about how hard it is to get malpractice reform enacted, and um, and it gets us down. But the thing, this is a, this pa- column suggests that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, which can be very, very positive. They're talking about some a series of reforms that were uh, done in uh, Texas between 2003 and 2005, which resulted in a total change in the climate regarding malpractice suits in that uh, country. And they changed this idea of simple negligence to willful and wanton negligence, which is um, not unique to them. Where, where else did they do that, Greg? This was done in Georgia. And what it basically does is say that instead of using in emergent cases a uh, usual uh, liability standard, it actually has to be a a, a lower standard, which is uh, understanding that neither the doctor or the consultant physicians they bring in has any right to choose uh, their business relationship. You don't get to pick in an emergency department who you're going to take care of. 
This isn't like a plastic surgeon who makes a contract with a patient to perform a surgery on them. You're stuck with whoever walks in. And if they're going to do anything to encourage physicians to show up in the emergency department, not so much the emergency docs, but all the other specialists, maybe you better at least take away the uh, immediate threat of liability if you want these doctors to uh, play in the game. And, th- and that's what's happening, that as uh, soon as they drop that, uh, all of a sudden physicians want to show up. Didn't they, didn't they say there was an increase in physicians applying to be doctors in uh, Texas? They have had a flood of applicants. Now, they did two other things. They limited pain and suffering to uh, $250,000, uh, which is yeah. actually a very miserly cap, frankly, right. given today uh, today's day and age and that kind of thing. But still, that's tight. They also said um, there's a requirement that an independent medical expert file a report supporting the claimant. Right. And many states have that, Rick. Uh, the real uh, changes have to do with who that medical expert is. You don't want a retired gynecologist from Cleveland having the right to file against an emergency physician. What they said was... If you're going to file, you're going to be a, a practitioner in that particular specialty. And the reason is, to file against your own specialty, you better have something real to say. Because most of the specialties will find you in some way, shape, or form and try you in their own, in their own uh, courts, uh, so to speak, and will come back after you. After all, what, what force do emergency physicians have against a uh, general surgeon in in uh, Toronto or a uh, or a uh, pediatrician in California uh, they're really not members of the organization where are you going to take them to show their bias in the situation so this is but, uh, the, the key the key i think though is the word independent in new jersey they they have the same law you have to you have to have a certificate of merit filed along with it and it it's uh, has to be someone in your specialty. They have zero difficulty getting people to uh, file the certificate of merit. Merit. In fact, generally, what happens is it's it's written by the plaintiff's attorney and just signed off on by an emergency physician who has already established themselves as willing to, for a price, do anything for the plaintiff. They've they, they've they've already recognized the fact that they have no credibility amongst their colleagues. They are generally practicing in a backwater area. Emergency medicine. Is they work just enough shifts so they can get up on the stand and say, well, I just last month I worked a shift. Um, but they, it has done nothing to dissuade the, the basic uh, trivial type suits because the plaintiff's attorney is one who hires the certifier. I think the key here is that it's independent. It is someone who is selected from a pool of uh, emergency physicians that the court appoints. And I think that's, that's the real key. Because if, if these guys can hire anybody, you you know that people will say anything for the proper amount of money. Once you've destroyed your reputation, who cares how many times you do it over and over yes, again? Yes, the world's oldest profession and the world's second oldest profession uh, have been married very nicely. And, <laughs> and uh, that's we call that uh, trial law, right? Uh, the bottom line is that this has been extraordinarily successful. And they said in this Wall Street Journal article, the Texas State Board of Medical Examiners had at one time a backlog of 3,000 applications. There, As a reflection, there was a 52% growth in the um, new doctors moving into San, T- San Antonio, which is really one of the nicer areas of Texas, Texas. If, they, if they have any particular. Uh, now, now, Rick. <laughs> we have a lot of Texas listeners. Be nice. 
there was a 35% decrease in the premium uh, assessed by the Texas Medical Liability Trust, saved doctors $217 million over four years. One Catholic system saved, in its, it just had a couple hospitals, $100 million over four years. So my the message here is do not despair. There is hope. There, there, there are more and more states are being reasonable about addressing this problem. Now, Al, you're in New Jersey, which is one of the hotbeds of problems. Uh, in, have there been any successful mitigation of this? No, actually, it's it's the, unfortunately most of the state assembly is made up of attorneys who are basically salaried by their personal injury fr- firms to serve on the state uh, <laughs> assembly. So it's it's yes, you are a partner in the firm, but you know the money you would lose by not practicing with the firm during the, the days you have to go up and work in the assembly. Uh, we're going to cover that cost because we need you sitting there to prevent anybody from putting any type of, of tort reform in. Actually, in New Jersey, they've got their own method, though, because if you're a practicing doctor and you've got an Uncle Guido, <laughs> he can say, hey, I don't think you want to file against my nephew here. You know what I mean? Yeah, that happens. Well, but every state, the legislators are uh, attorneys kind of thing. About two-thirds of the uh, of the Michigan legislature is attorneys. And it just is, you know, first of all, they got nothing better to do. Uh, secondly, uh, who really cares what they're doing? Uh, but the third thing is they love to play with these. Uh, they're non-technical people who love to, t- to play with technical issues. And it's always a dangerous thing. I mean, no comments about uh, our recent uh, race in the, in the Democratic Party. But she had uh, two know-nothing attorneys going at each other when, quite frankly, most of the problems the country has to solve are technical questions. Well, they knew enough to become multimillionaires. Exactly right. Sandy Mann gave us a list of stuff that is, is still a problem, fractures. And Greg said before we started the recording, fractures, you would think that people would have this thing down now. How could you possibly keep getting sued on such a fundamental kind of emergency medicine thing? You know, I still see some fracture work in the cases that come into me. It's relatively rare, but it's always the same thing. It's x-ray negative or initially x-ray negative orthopedics because x-ray positive orthopedics is almost never a problem when you actually walk in and the femur is broken in half you never get sued on that case because the patient can't walk out it's a problem for somebody but it's almost never a problem for the emergency physician we know what we're going to do with that the much tougher cases are things like the gamekeeper's thumb which the initial x-ray may show absolutely nothing, and the emergency physician minimizes it. So here's my suggestion. Anytime you think that a bone is painful enough to take a picture, tell them it might be fractured. Always downplay the accuracy of the first radiograph and say, look, if there's still pain in seven days, there could be a crack there we don't see. We'll take another picture. But what you don't say is good news, no fracture, because the bottom line is you can be wrong with that. I think when I get complaints and feel complaints is the patient will say to me, the doc said there was nothing wrong. And I'll kind of take them back a step and say, did the doc say there was nothing wrong or did the doc say we didn't find anything? They'll say, well, yeah, that's actually what he said. He said they didn't find anything because there's a big difference. Nothing wrong means that there's nothing wrong with you. We didn't find anything means we looked, we didn't find it. There may still be something there, but our tests, our x-ray of your injured ankle or whatever did not find a fracture. But Al, it's the message they take away from the discussion. If the message is, we didn't find anything, or is the message, 
you know what, there could still be something wrong. It's which one prevailed in their head. Because now it's seven days later or 14 days later, they show up at their own doctor, they shoot a picture, and now you can see the resorbing fracture line. I think that's the problem that they haven't recognized the fact that there is a limitation to the test. And of course, the next day, you and I always get back some note from radiology, there's a ditzel this or a ditzel that, or we think there's some fine spicules pulled off. In the emergency department, in the heat of battle, when you're seeing lots of patients, I think you can miss some of those things. And you know what? I don't think it should be that big a deal if you've prepared the patient for what they're going to hear. But the other thing is, is if they're painful enough that they came in and got an x-ray, more times than not, you're going to either immobilize them or get them off of their ankle, send them home on with crutches or some type of a device so they're not weight-bearing on this painful ankle or the, you sling their hand or elbow or whatever so that they made some effort to address their pain and that usually is sufficient to address an occult fracture that got missed. You know, Ricky, we probably ought to talk to Sandy and get some of their cases with scrubbed, of course, information off, but find I, out I, what it is. I want to name names, Greg. I know. I, I understand want to see who that. These doctors uh, you are. want to see them twist in the wind, <laughs> Ricky. Don't do that. Mismanagement, inappropriate management of sepsis is on the list. Now, I don't really know what that means in terms of what would generate a lawsuit. They don't go home. Sepsic patients come into the hospital. They get fluids. They get antibiotics. They get cultures here and there. This probably is another area we need to get a little bit more specific on because is following the sepsis bundle the standard of care? I don't think so. Is every soul being measured their lactates if they've got a fever and a little tachycardia and they're 82 years old? Nobody's ever said that following a lactate level, which is a marker, not the actual disease, actually changes the outcome. I think that what you have to look at is the amount of fluids given, the time frame, when the antibiotics went in. But as soon as you get beyond that, all of these other things are on a tenuous scientific base that they actually change the outcome. All these catheters passed into the pulmonary artery and that sort of thing, as far as I'm concerned, that is certainly not the standard of care, nor is there a literature base that says it changes the outcome. Yeah, but I think you've got to tease out what she's looking at because it's not unusual, even in our place, to have a little old lady come in from the nursing home. First set of vital signs, blood pressure is about 100. Somebody writes their initial orders, their fluids running at 100 cc's an hour, and they languish in the emergency department for six, seven, eight hours only to find out that their blood pressure had dropped to 80 two hours after they were there, and no one told anybody about it, and so they sat around for a long time. Well, they've had 400 cc's when they probably should have had four to six liters Correct. at that point in time. Correct, and I think that may be the case you're looking at. So it's not that they're not getting mixed venous O2 sats, it's that... They sat around with minimal amounts of fluids going into them. They have one set of vital signs, and then they show up on the floor with having knocked off their kidneys. Yeah. Let me make another point. When you have a technology which is of minimal proven value, and you've got nurses tied up doing that on a patient, and doing all these various catheters and monitors is definitely labor-intensive, then they're not taking care of the other patients in the department. I honestly don't think the emergency department is the place in the average community hospital where that sort of thing should be going on. I mean, you guys can throw that back and forth, but unless you're different than I am, you've got a very limited nursing staff, you've got only so many techs, those patients need to be in an ICU. True, except for the fact that if this does turn out to be the case, that putting a CVP into somebody is of worthwhile and, and measuring these values is of worthwhile, then we are going to have to figure out a way to do it. I think the days of us just saying, 
you know what, we're good for two hours and then we need to move them on to somebody else are pretty limited because it's clear that the standard in the United States is to hang in the emergency department for 8, 10, 24 hours. And if that's the case, we need to be able to care for those people. Now, that may need... We Not need, at my place, Jack. That's a long time as far as I'm concerned. Right, but we may need to come up with means to deliver that care. It may mean they have to give us more resources. It may mean we have to go back and say, well, you know what, if you're going to be here and your standard, you deserve to be in the ICU, but you're hanging in my emergency department for 24 hours, then I got to get extra nurses down here. So there's only two of you ICU patients for one ER nurse, as opposed to the standard now where we've got five ICU admissions hanging down here. And so the hospital's got to step up to the plate there. I don't see it happening. I think I see what going to happen is what happens at our place, which is, hey, they're down in your department, your responsibility. We staffed you for the 50,000 patients. You saw that included all the admissions. It's like, yeah, but there's a difference between staffing us for the 50,000 ER patients and stabilizing somebody for two hours versus keeping them down here for 24 hours. Well, this is an extension of the fact that somebody moved the cheese, I think that was the name of the book. They built you a 50,000-visit emergency department forgetting that when they built that, you didn't do things like major abdominal pain workups with four hours holding people for CT scans of the abdomen. You weren't doing five-hour rule-outs of all this other sort of stuff. So I think that the old view that we've staffed you for 50,000 visits forgets what we used to do in the old days for patients and what they'd like us to do now. The workup now, I don't even know what internists do because all the decisions are made before they get upstairs. Nobody's doing any investigation upstairs anymore. What they come in for is treatment if they need it. But I'll tell you what, in our place, we send somebody up without the exact diagnosis. All of a sudden, they're angry about it. At least once or twice a month, I get that case kicked down to me, which is you send somebody up to the floor and they had X and you brought them in for something non-specific. You sent them up with chest pain and it turned out that they had a occult fracture of their cervical spine. Some little old lady with osteoporosis got a compression fracture. You know, what was the matter with you? It's like, there is something you must do on that floor. And to the extent, going back to Rick's point with the sepsis, to the extent that we are now being asked to go beyond just the holy shit, this little old lady from the nursing home sick, let me get some fluid into her, let me get some antibiotics into her, let me get her upstairs, that's gone now. So I can see suits arising from the fact that it's not so much the emergency physicians mismanage them, it's the emergency physicians never made the transition to becoming the intensivist who was taking care of that patient. And that's where the thing fell through the crack. I'd be very interested to see whether those suits have to do with whether people were measuring lactate levels or mixed venous O2s or whether they were in the emergency department for an extended period of time and no one really did give, like Greg said, four liters of fluid to them. They got 400 cc's of fluid. Well, let me give you a paper here that makes it clear that holding ICU patients in the ER is a dangerous business. This is a fabulous paper, and I think everybody who's interested in this topic ought to get it. It's from the June 2007 issue of Critical Care Medicine, where they looked at 50,000 ICU admissions through the emergency department at 120 hospital ICUs between 2000 and 2003. It's already a five-year-old paper. And one of the things that was interesting, they said, we're going to look at the people who had six or more hours in the ER after the decision was to admit them to the ICU. So they're being held six hours after this decision. They said how many patients were represented? 2%. 
2% of all of these 50,000 cases were in the ER for more than six hours after the MIT decision. I think that number is extraordinarily low. I think after the last five years, that number has crept up substantially. I, oh, I'm sure I would be delighted if only 2% of our admissions were there for six hours. Here's the outcome. Length of stay difference, they were in the hospital one day longer. But more importantly, ICU mortality, 10.7% in the group with the delay transfer, 8.4% in the group who were admitted sooner. That's 0.01 statistically significant. Corresponding inpatient mortality, 17.4% versus 12.9%. We're talking about a 5%. The number needed to kill here is 1 in 20 patients who you hold more than six hours who an ICU patient in your emergency department is likely to die. Now, because you're holding them, does that mean that something bad happened down there? It probably is a reflection that the whole hospital is a mess right now. The lab's too slow. X-ray's too slow. I can't get them into ICU because they're all full up. And maybe this whole time is a marker of a more dysfunctional system going on. You bring that to your hospital administration, and they're just going to turn around and say, Rick, that's why you're the chief down there. Your job is to make sure these kind of things don't happen to people. We wound up in front of the, the med exec committee, and they said, how come when we have somebody admitted to the emergency department, it takes so much longer to get stuff done than when they're admitted to the floor? Usually just back answers. Yeah, <laughs> that was my comment. My comment was, well, shouldn't you be talking to the hospital administration about getting these people out of the emergency department, and then things will get done? We are an emergency department. We'll get an airway. We'll get a line. We'll get somebody else. Get these people out of my department. I can That's stabilize why we went anybody. In. That's why we went into emergency medicine. All of us in emergency medicine are ADHD or ADD. We want to get it going, get it done, get them moved. Nobody does well waiting around that department for hours and hours and hours. And by the way, if you want to see upset families, when you've told them at 8 o'clock in the morning, grandma's getting admitted, and 4 o'clock in the afternoon they haven't moved yet, they don't understand that. They wouldn't put up with it here in the Marriott Hotel. Why should they put up with it where they're paying more money per day at Our Lady of Lords? Where, where you're going to be in a room with a total stranger and you're going to be sharing a bathroom. How Can you imagine coming into this hotel and they say, uh, we got you in a room with Mr. Smith from Dubuque. He's a nice fellow. You'll be sharing a room with him and it's only $1,000 a day. And Dubuque <laughs> sounds like Dubuque, which is what he's doing. Right. We did an interesting study where we looked at within our department – what it costs to rent an ER stretcher for the day. So if you, as opposed to renting a room at the Marriott here, and we actually use the price of a room at the Marriott here by comparison, and then we broke it down by hour. It turns out that an ER stretcher, at least at our place, where we admit about 20% of the patients, we're a little bit busy, has the potential to generate about $350 an hour. So if you stick an admission on there, for every hour that admission sticks on there, that's $344 you are potentially losing. If it's an admitted patient, you're losing $1,000 an hour. If, if it's a discharge patient, you're losing about $74 an hour when you do all the, the calculations. And what we figured was if you admit 16 people a day, now we don't, we admit 20-some a day. If you admit 16 people a day and each of them stays on that stretcher for six hours a day, your hospital's losing $7 million a year. Well, that's this loss opportunity cost argument that people right. like to make. The assumption is that there are patients waiting to be seen that'll fill those beds and you will see more patients than you would have. But here's my counter argument to that and that is people always say that they said well that only counts if there's somebody waiting to come in. Well our waiting room's full most of the time. Right, but, exactly. But that, there are people yeah, waiting to come in. But that aside every time a hospital has built a bigger ER or expanded their existing ER 
people have come in to fill that over and above what was just waiting in your waiting room. What you've said is, if you build it, they will come. Yes. Which is also the motto of the American Urologic Society. So go ahead. Oh, Jesus, Louise. <laughs> <laughs> we do need to get your medication level adjusted here, Gregory. Okay. <laughs> Let's do another one here. I think that this is a particularly important. It's about handoffs. As patients stay in the department longer and longer and longer, there's going to be more and more handoffs. And the Joint Commission is really getting into formalizing the handoff process in terms of on the floors between nurses, how patients are passed between one and the other, and I think as well in the emergency department. One of the things that we've recently incorporated in our department is getting our physicians to physically go into the room and introduce their patient to Dr. So-and-so, the oncoming doctor. This is Mr. So-and-so. He's had some da, 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 da. We're waiting for this or that. I'd like you to introduce you to Dr. So-and-so. So do it in a quite formal process because one of the things that you need to implant in your colleagues' heads are these are real people that we're seeing here that we're not just waiting for test results. You are going to be responsible for the signing that diagnosis down in most of these cases, not all of them. And we have to kind of make this process a little bit safer because, Al, don't you have a story of a handoff that went terribly bad? We've had over the years, if you look across all the emergency departments that we cover, we have had more cases related to handoffs than anything else. And the main reason being, there's two types of handoffs. One is, this is Mrs. Smith. Everything is written up for her to go home. I think she has a urinary tract infection. Including her aftercare instructions. Right. Everything is done. And her prescriptions. Right. I have told her when her urine comes back, if it's positive, you're going to hit the button and she's going home. That's one type of handoff. The other type of handoff, in that case, you don't have to go see anybody. You just have to see when their urine comes up, hit the button, it goes out. And that can even... Well, I think this is a matter of courtesy kind of thing. It's still a good idea to go in there and introduce that person to the next doctor and let them know that something's happening here and your care is... There's always another issue because at the time that she wants to go home, I need a note for this. By the way, can I do that? By the way, my husband's got the same symptoms. By the way, this, that, or another thing. You know what? It's never simple. I'd like it to be simple, too. I understand what you're saying, Al, about just completing a small part of it. Right. But my experience has been with my partners who've given me a case like that. There's another issue that has to be dealt with. That's why it's good to go in, and they got to see another doc at some point that cleans that kind of crap up. I don't argue with that. I, I really don't. But You'd probably like that if you, you were a patient kind of thing. This seems like a reasonable thing to do. It's not going to take a lot of time, I don't think, depending on how many patients you're transferring. But that's the whole point. I'd be willing to bet of, of your listeners, I'll bet three-quarters of them stay over time tying up loose ends so they don't sign patients out. We all do that, but you can only do that for so long. Right. An eight-hour shift is always a nine-hour shift. That's just part of the deal. The big groups that we have that are going to follow for a long time that are dangerous are things like alcoholics who are sobering up, chest pain workups that are going on. Or now it's the CT scan stuff where, believe me, our radiologists still want the two-hour prep and the dye and all that kind of stuff. They want it. They want it. Greg, you got a couple of cases for us this month? Yeah, I do, as a matter of fact, Rick. And these cases are so typical and so obvious, and yet they still keep happening over and over again. Let's do the first case here, and this is the case of, we'll just use STUT, S-T-U-D-T, versus Sherman Health System. This is a case, a file case. We can talk about the names. This is public record. And in this case, 
This is a failure to hospitalize a woman with abdominal pain when the CT scan shows no evidence of appendicitis. So what you have is a 44-year-old woman who goes into the hospital with right lower quadrant pain. She's got a tenderness and guarding in the right lower quadrant on examination. The emergency physician gets a CT scan. CT scan read by radiology as, we can see the appendix, it's fine. Let's the lady go home. Now what is not stated in the details of the published case is exactly when he told her to be back for re-examination, which I think is a critical issue. But she goes home two days later admitted. Now she's got a ruptured appendix and they go in, they do the drainage. Obviously she has some complications after that. The lawsuit comes and $867,000 later, our emergency doctor is having to think about the fact that, you know what, CT is just a test, and it isn't perfect. And I think that it's good to kind of keep that thing in mind. What are you going to tell the patient when the CT scan is negative? Just a point of clarification, though. In this case, did anybody come back and say, you know what, we had that CAT scan read by another radiologist, the plaintiff's radiologist, who said it obviously showed appendicitis. No, on both sides, they agreed that the CT scan was not diagnostic of appendicitis. That is one thing they could agree on in the case. I, I find that fasc- fascinating. Well, that the no, case no, there's down no that question. Way. There's false negatives with CTs and appendicitis. Absolutely. Well, and I think we, it's fair to toss around the number that in the old days we would say, 10 to 12% of the time we operated upon something that wasn't appendicitis. Now we've probably dropped it to 7% error rates. Those numbers are fair, I think. But you know what? It's still a test that carries with it false positives and false negatives. And I think that unless you deal with it that way, and when you go to talk to the patient, you cannot tell them, well, you don't have appendicitis based on this test. Just like you don't have a broken bone. You Just like you don't have a broken bone. You know what? We're going to relook at you in eight hours and see how your belly's doing. But that also goes to the point of spending some time at the bedside examining the person. No, no. That'll, come on now. You're another radical, aren't you? <laughs> Next, you want to talk to them. You want to examine them. I bet you even want to re-examine them, don't you, Al? Well, see, oh, but, my God. But you know what? Unfortunately, that's where we've got a lot of kids coming up who... Don't do that. You would have looked at this patient and said, there's something not right here. The exam doesn't quite fit the diagnosis. Let's make it simpler. You looked at somebody you swore had a fracture, and you just didn't see it on the x-ray. But you said, you know what? I'm going to put you in a splint and everything else. And they came back a little while later and turned out on re-x-ray they did have a fracture. Same thing. You say, damn it, there's something going on with your belly. Your CAT scan's negative. You would not have just sent that person home and said, your CAT scan's negative. Get the hell out of my department. I need the stretcher for somebody else. Right. Because exactly. it's costing us how many dollars is that? That's right. You're costing, costing me $344 an hour. You stretcher. can't sit here. Get out of here. Well, there's nothing as useful in medicine as the test of time. And if Correct. you see him back eight hours later, if you saw this woman at midnight, she's still got her pain. She feels worse. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. You bring her back. Now the surgeon's in the house. He can drop down, feel the belly as well. You get somebody else involved in this examination. I think that rapid or a relatively rapid re-examination is the solution to most of our problems. But I think you bring up a good point. And a buddy of mine who I trained with, uh, Todd Warden, taught me this when I was just starting out. He was one of the residents with me. He said, 
you never send anybody home with an open-ended discharge who's got a diagnosis like that. You can send someone home with an open-ended discharge who's got something very clearly defined. I sold your cut up. You are going to see your, your family doctor. They've got belly pain. You have to close the loop. Either you're coming back to see me in eight hours. You're coming back to see the surgeon who I called who's going to see in their office in 10 hours. You're going to see your family doctor in, in such and such time. I called and made arrangements. This leaving it open, like if you get any more pain or your pain doesn't get better, follow up leaves you to an awful lot of interpretation of instructions. Well, my pain didn't get worse. It just didn't get better. And you didn't say to come back if it didn't get worse. No matter what, belly pains, you want to have come back and somebody be scheduled to re-examine them. That's one of the areas where follow-up and re-examination is absolutely essential. The other one is your area, Al, kids. I mean, the only test that says that a sick kid is sick is somebody is an experienced examiner takes a look and says, you know what, that kid looks sick. Right. I don't know why they're sick, but that kid's sick. You can't always tell from the white count or the urine or anything else whether that kid's sick. But you can walk in the room, and all of us who are experienced, we take about ten seconds to look and say that one's coming in. Right. That's the way it is. Let me be the devil's advocate in this case. They lost. It was eight hundred some thousand dollars. Yes. I have to deduce that the issue was were there clinical findings at the time that should have indicated you should have taken this action? You inappropriately weighed the CAT scan more than what was presenting with this case because you specifically said this person had guarding. Guarding, to my understanding, is a sign of peritoneal inflammation. Tenderness is one thing. Guarding is another. Well, we see guarding written on all kinds of charts. You looked at the nurses' notes lately when they write down rebound or guarding. You have to be careful about the terminology here. I understand, but I think the other thing is we've been seduced into believing that the CAT scan is a better judge of who needs to go to the operating room than an intelligent surgeon. Wait well, wait a second. Did I just use a non sequitur there? Well, this jury of people not smart enough to get out of jury duty has determined that there was enough evidence going on at that time that a different action should have been taken in these cases. And I don't disagree with that. I'm just pointing out that it's interesting to see an emergency doc who got the CT scan, and the CT scan is negative, and he's getting hosed on the case. I'll be the devil's advocate along with Rick, which is if they didn't have guarding or some type of findings on the physical examination, why would you have even gotten the CAT scan? Of course. So they, they had to have something. You've already established that they have findings consistent with an abdominal process if you took the step to order the CAT scan. Right. So that's step number one. So now what you do with the results and how you treat the patient afterwards – I have had patients where I've looked at them and I said, oh, my exam is like, damn, this person's going to have an appy. And the CAT scan comes back negative and the rest of the physical exam, some of it looks like it, some of it doesn't, and you, you buy tincture of time. It's like we can either watch it in the hospital, we're going to send you home, but somewhere along the line, you close the loop and bring them back for reevaluation. This doesn't mean they necessarily need to be taken off to the operating room. Well, they probably don't. But in the past, we depended more on physical examination than we did anything else to decide to operate on bellies. Right. And today, I think we've swung way too far to the other extreme, thinking that this test answers all questions. And unfortunately, I think there's young surgeons who believe that as well, that they don't have to come in tonight if the CT scan isn't positive. And I just don't think that's right. Now, I can't argue with that. I, they're not, if you're not going to take them to the OR, that's fine. But... Someone's got to look at them. Let me take you back 30 years or 20 years when the three of us were just starting. 
you could make the identical argument you just made for a CBC, for a white blood cell count. There was a time when a surgeon would not operate on a person with a normal white blood cell count. I'm not sure that's the case. They knew that 10% of those were wrong. Right, true. But you basically, that was the, the be-all and end-all test with appendicitis 20, 30 years ago. And now we've just replaced it with a more sophisticated test, a little more expensive test. A little more dangerous test. A little bit more dangerous test, but a test nonetheless that's got some false positives and false negatives. Yeah, we have to remember that these tests are by no means perfect, and you cannot disproportionately weigh the test over your exam, thinking that technology is better than uh, your exam. Bottom line is, if I have to believe my exam or the test, I believe my exam. And if I got to see them again, let's see them at short time interval as opposed to long time. I'll go along with here, but I've been fooled with my exam. I've been positive that somebody had appendicitis. Well, you're allowed to overcall it right. and put them in and see how they do kind of thing. But when I started out, that's exactly what you would have done. You would have brought this person in. In this day and age, no one is bringing in a right lower quadrant with a normal CAT scan to be watched in the hospital. That's going to be go home and come back in six hours. Even if you decided to load them with some antibiotics, the antibiotics have a half-life that's greater than the eight hours that you're going to recheck them at. You're moving down, I think, a very dangerous path. If you're going to give empirical antibiotics to somebody who's got right lower quadrant pain, I think that that's a little dangerous. But we do it all the time for our divertech. That's, 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 that's a different that's, that's disease a, that's process. A different portion of the belly there. Before we move on to the next topic, I wanted to reiterate that our aftercare instructions have their own, like, 16 type print if you develop any new symptoms if your symptoms worsen or if your symptoms persist and there's a little blank there you need to come back to the emergency department we don't want you going to your family doctor family doctor says i can see in two days okay fine we don't want that we want them to come back to the emergency department new worse or persist those are the only three things that a medical condition do and get new symptoms persisting symptoms or worsening symptoms that's it we do that, too. We bring them back to our department, partly because of where we practice. A lot of them don't have family practitioners. But, and I'll throw this out to Greg, how does that hold up when the plaintiff's attorney then says, pick me 20 discharge summaries? Doc, you wrote this one every discharge summary. Do you mean to tell me that there's nothing specific about my plaintiff here that you couldn't write no, something? Any, I don't want to have to list if this happens, if this happens, if this happens, if this happens. I want to know if it's new, if you don't have it now and you got it later, I want you back. You know, Rick's point is well taken. I don't want a layman to make a judgment about the significance of the development of a new symptom. That's exactly right. Somebody looked at the discharge instructions, which we used for head injury for years. Oh, what a joke they were. That was a total joke. We looked at one set that said, if the pupils are no longer symmetrical bilaterally, (laughs) do you realize that most... You're decorticate by that time. By the time (laughs) your pupils don't move, you know, you're fit for postal employment only. I mean, you're in deep shape. You can't do it. Yeah, we used to have a set that said that. I like pupils bigger than the other. Yeah, yeah, you can't do that. If you vomit more than twice... There's no literature to support how many times vomiting differentiates between this or that. If your kid's not vomiting now and he starts vomiting, that's a new symptom. I want him back. Right, exactly. And more than this about getting up, does your child's arm move? Does their leg move? You know what? Parents can't be put in that state. Let's check them for a taxi, wake them up three times during the night. They're going to be miserable anyway. Well, the worst one was that if your child has no dystinocokinesis, you can let them go back to sleep. I left that on the That was really Let's do your other case about the paranoid patient. This is a very interesting case. man was in the waiting area for treatment of his paranoia in the emergency department. He's going to be seen by a doc, 
the nurse saw him in triage. Now he decides that he's going to start running around in the treatment area and ultimately runs over to the edge of a window at the treatment area and jumps from a balcony and kills himself. Now, obviously, this is some high-class hospital because they have a balcony. Well, it's San Francisco we're talking about here, as a matter of fact. And, of course, the plaintiff claims, the family of this gentleman claims, no treatment had been given. He was left by himself. And here's the term, the art term in law, which is they knew or should have known that the patient represented a danger to self or others, and he took his own life. The California court that looked at this applies the professional negligence statute of limitations and it dismisses the case. But, you know, when you think about this, now you've got somebody who they've decided is a psych problem, is waiting to see the doctor. He's out there running around. While he's running around, no security was called. And now he jumps off the balcony and kills himself. You know, this is a problem. So the case got dismissed not because they thought the hospital acted appropriately, it's because of statute of limitations. Actually, this one was dismissed on a statute of limitations basis. Right. I'm going to ask the two of you this. Is that any different than a patient comes in and says, I have chest pain, I am the triage nurse or the triage officer, and I make an assessment that your chest pain doesn't sound cardiac, I send you back out to the waiting room because there's no space in the back, and you kill over dead from your heart attack. This guy was assessed by a healthcare professional, and in that person's judgment, he was capable of being placed in the the waiting area. By the way, he shifted, he changed his behavior, however, while in the waiting room. Okay. I mean, it wasn't that he was sitting there quietly and dropped over dead, what you're implying from the heart patient. Right. By the way, I've certainly seen heart patients where they were convinced that it probably was angina, but every room in the back was full. Yeah. The hallways were full. They had two monitors sitting in the waiting room with patients, right. on patients. They couldn't handle it. Right. They couldn't handle it. I think all of these cases are situational depending on what you got going on. After all, if you and I are sitting in a place that has a 10-bed emergency department and only three of the beds are full, then not bringing them back is a problem. Well, if, if everything's case, full. Every patient ought to be back. You shouldn't have anybody in your waiting room. Of course. But the other problem is it's a psych patient where there is very little science that can be applied to the psych, the quote-unquote paranoid patient. If you have the chest pain patient, you can ask, the, does the pain radiate? Is it pressure? Is it tightness? It's, no, it's a sharp pain. It hurts when I move my right arm, and it hurts right in this one spot there, and you touch it with a finger. There's some science. In the psych patients, you can say, and what are the voices telling you? Right. And the problem is the voices never tell them to do the right thing. How come the voices in this country never tell them to get their hair cut and take their medicines and get a job? The voices never tell you stuff like that, do they? But the other thing is we're a crisis unit. And I can honestly see this guy coming back and being one of our patients who's there three, four times a week. And he says, the voices are talking to me again and I'm agitated. All right, have a seat over there. We've got no space for you, right? As soon as we get an opening in the back, you're coming back. And is this somebody who every other time was perfectly fine? Now he gets up and he gets a little agitated. The only argument you can say is when his behavior changed, the nurse or the triage individual needed to reassess him. That's about the only criticism you could make. Well, let me be the devil's advocate. You're doing that a lot today. I was just going to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you and Beelzebub got a thing going here. Go ahead. There is an issue about triage in terms of who should be triage. The most experienced person in the department, like in war, 
in the triage is sorting out who gets seen in the order which they get seen. Right. Some people would take the position that the smartest surgeon should be doing the triage kind of thing. And there's a difference here between triage and a medical screening examination. Triage basically is an inexact science. And the question is, is whether this nurse really did a good job in the process of ascertaining whether this person had, was it's, dangerous. It still comes back to you, a you're asking, call. Oh, great one. You're asking a huge philosophic question, which is, is what's going on in U.S. hospitals today, and it's been going on for the last 40 or 50 years, is it inappropriate? Because there are very few places that have the doctor doing the triage. I advised at one of those places in Singapore where the person out front was a doc who had a bunch of cubicles and one tech. That was the senior doctor who was looking to decide what ought to happen. There are hospitals in the United States that do that, and California emergency physicians in my state has developed this, I don't know what they call it, doc and triage system or something to that effect, where they do just that, and that is spreading around. Some people are having some success with it, others are not. I don't see any value to that in terms that if you've got space in the back, you've got space in the back. This idea of putting the more experienced person out there, unless that person is going to treat and discharge people from they that are. area. They, they are. do. They are. No, there's not a big advantage to it. But for an individual that there's no question, this guy is going to have to be seen in the back, in the treatment area. The bigger problem is, and again, is this an institution where the triage staff takes pride in keeping someone in the waiting room long enough to leave, or that's considered a home run? I kept them out there long enough that they got they got I, bored. I wore them down and they left, which is a problem. And there are some old-time ER personnel who still maintain that philosophy. Or is this an institution where this is a person who in all good faith said, I've got limited resources. Given my limited resources, the best I can do is have this paranoid person entertaining the waiting room right at the moment. We could spend a lot of time on the psych patient issue. Maybe we should devote more time to it. But down the road, because there's all this issue about the quality of the physical exam and the assessment of whether they have an organic component to this and not missing those kinds of things. So let's put that on a back burner for now, and let's move on to a couple of letters. Greg? Yeah, we've got a couple letters here. First one, Dr. Henry, you and others on the panel have talked several times about chronic pain patients in the ER. Much of the time, the patient's goal is to get narcotics, and the doctor's goal is to not give narcotics. Somewhere, there must be a happy medium. Nobody minds treating occasional breakthrough pain. But how many visits are too many visits? Is it 2? Is it 5? Is it 12? Is it 17? 25? These are actual numbers of some of the patients who visit me. I do not think it should be my role to fill the duragesic patch for the lady with the fibromyalgia or Percocet or Dilaudid for patients who probably should not have them in their program anyway. This comes to us from James Twombly. James, thanks for writing, and we'll get some impressions here from the panel. First of all, that's the bane of existence of every emergency physician. Of course. And then some of us have the philosophy of like, you know what, you just wore me down. I know that if I sit with you, no matter what excuse I give you for not giving your medicine, you're going to have an excuse why you should get it. We're busy. If I give you 20 Percocet, will you go away and not come back for another month? It's basically a bargaining chip to get him out of here. But it's a negotiation. Was, it's a, it? Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, like, what I, will it take to get you to leave? Yeah, yeah yes. exactly. What's the minimum number? <laughs> What's the minimum number and the minimum amount of time I can get you out of here? But there was a fascinating article in the American Journal of Medicine about a year and a half ago where what this 
emergency department did was they sent a letter to every family practitioner. They basically generated a list of their frequent emergency department users for pain. Frequent flyers. Correct. They sent a letter to each of their doctors saying, we will no longer give your patient pain medicines without a letter from you documenting the, the frequency and everything else for when they should get this stuff. They then sent a letter to those patients, a certified letter to those patients saying, if you show up in our department, you are not getting pain medicine unless it is in conjunction with a deal we have with your family practitioner and everything else. We have the same letters. We send them out as well. Yeah. And these people went away. It was just too well documented. What, and, yeah, time what out. about these emtolic kind of things where refusal to treat acute pain is viewed as a problem? We it, never say we will not treat pain. Well, I what think we say to, what is... My point is here is you have to be careful in how you work. Oh, yeah. These yeah. They had the example in the article that was worded in just the, the, the correct way, so it did not violate Intala or any, put anybody at risk and those types of things. But it was a very interesting premise. You know, Jim, I don't think there is a number. We look at the department meeting every month. They bring up names of patients who have been in the department a fair amount. Plus, we do what they call a MAP survey. We can actually look at... Every prescription given to that patient in the state of Michigan in the last three years, if we want, to kind of know what's going on. We do send them letters. We always continue to see people for their problems. We point out and we try and get them into other situations, into pain management clinics, that sort of thing. But you know what? It was a dangerous job when you took it, Jim. You knew this is going to be part of the deal. If you're a cardiologist, you see unexplained chest pain. If you're a GI person, you see unexplained GI pain. If you're an emergency doc, you see unexplained every kind of pain. And it's just part of the deal. I don't think there's ever been a generation of physicians that didn't have a similar problem they got to deal with. Worse than that, we have people who legitimize a whole industry, the drug industry, legitimizes certain diseases. Have you seen the new drugs for fibromyalgia? Now we've got things which it's unbelievable what we're treating. But interesting enough, none of those things work. It's only the perks that works for them. He brings up a good point, though. I mean, these people are a problem, and every emergency department in the country has these folks, and I don't think anyone's come up with a great solution to how to handle them. No, I think it is the bane of the existence, and we don't know what to do. Well, let me take a devil's advocate position here. <laughs> yeah, for the third time. <laughs> hey, you are the devil. I must admit, during these courses, and we've done – Lots of them, over 500 courses. And you, this topic comes up all of the time. Continuously. All the time. I see some doctors who are really, really struggling with this. It really bothers them. They view it as really problematic. And I see other doctors who handle this without the angst that their colleagues seem to suffer over this kind of thing. Right. Now, maybe they don't have the angst because what they do is how many perks it's going to take you to get out of here. Yeah. But I truly believe that not every one of these people is scamming us and that, God forbid, you didn't have a chronic problem with your back, your head, your migraines, etc., etc. I think many of these people have real diseases. And when they come into the emergency department with that migraine, what do you see? The nurses roll their eyes. He's here again kind of thing. Everybody is attuned to this person needing pain medication, even though they're genuinely vomiting for crying out loud kind of thing. And they got the photophobia and the whole kit and caboodle. Now, I'm not saying all, but I would rather over-treat somebody and give them the benefit of the doubt than to be the world's savior from the opioid addiction. Well, I agree with you, Rick. The truth is I've never cured an addict in the department by withholding drugs. 
I've never made an addict in the department by giving a drug. These patients are complex, and you're right. There are no question that there are chronic pain patients that we do not understand, and I'd rather take away some pain, give maybe a few more pills than I should, than deny people with real pain some relief. There's no question about that. In our area, I'm known as an easy hit. Yeah, they know. call up, and when's Dr. Cicchetti working again? Yep, they will get the phone calls when you're working. But the truth of the matter is, it is a problem. It takes up space. It takes up time. There is a better solution. One of the things that's interesting, we do have a completely free clinic. The hospital runs, and I volunteer there once a month. And I am really a fish out of water in a primary care clinic. But I can now say to these people, you are no longer to come here to the emergency department. You have a chronic pain problem. You can come and see me in the clinic. I'm there first Tuesday every month. That's by the time I'm there. So when they show up in the emergency department, I can now say to them, nope, you were supposed to see me a week ago in the clinic. You didn't show up then. Oh, but I couldn't. I said, I don't want to hear any excuses. I know you don't have a job because you told me you have too much pain to have a job. So it couldn't have been that you were at work. You have nothing else going on. You should have been there. Now I'm on much safer ground saying you're not getting anything. Well, now we can officially call him Al the Candyman, Sacchetti. (laughs) We got another letter from Chip Potter. This is a tough one. He was asking us to elaborate on shift lengths and potential liability issues. And this is what I consider to be a very dangerous area to go. I think the shift lengths can be too long. I think you can get tired. You can get sloppy. There's no question about it, but it relates to how many patients you're seeing, what kind of acuity you're seeing, and there's no formula that where you say you should never work a 24-hour shift because there's some places in the middle of your pip where a 24-hour shift is probably very reasonable. Well, yeah. but also, it's the individual doctor. For example, I could see more patients and drive harder through folks at age 26 than I can now in my 60s. So it's not just the shift length, it's the dock, it's the situation. You know, it's very interesting that the airlines have thought about this a lot. All of a sudden, as soon as you hit your 60th birthday, you're too old to fly that damn plane. The plane flies itself, man. Well, but all I'm telling you is they've decided that's going to happen. We're one of the few professions which deals with that kind of intensity that has decided not to put out any guidelines, limitations, or anything. I think when a shift length goes over three days, you've been there too long. (laughs) Yeah, I think that the other piece of it is it's not just the shift length, it's how many hours you work in a given period of time. Right. We've had situations where a doc's going away on a vacation and says, give me as many shifts as you can in two weeks, so they'll work 14 days straight. And by the 14th shift... They're cranky at everybody and nobody's sick and, you know, what the hell are you doing here? So there is certainly issues in terms of their behavior, but there's got to be issues in terms of their ability to see people and, and to make decisions. We had a case in New Jersey, not at our place, but it's a case that, that I know of in New Jersey, where it was a 12-hour shifts. The nurses insisted on ordering 12-hour shifts and it was five in the morning. Someone came in with a benign disease. The order was for one medicine. They went to the Pixis, keyed in the medicine. The Pixis was not set up properly, so they had it alphabetically set up. So they were in the slot right next to the one that the medicine they were supposed to give was another cardioactive medicine that began with the same letter. They inadvertently picked up the wrong vial, looked at it, and drew it up and gave the person the the wrong medicine and the patient wound up with an arrhythmia and some problems as a result of it. And obviously I'm whitewashing this thing so, so nobody can identify it. But the truth of the matter is there is no doubt in my mind that at seven at night when that nurse started that shift, this would never have happened. 
I'm absolutely convinced that it was the nadir of the time and everything else. And this was just something waiting to happen. And they insist, and I think nursing is even worse than physicians in insisting they want these 12-hour shifts. Well, they limit them to three or four a week, but they still then they go moonlight at some other hospital. Yep. You know, and then to send the money back to the Philippines. I remember years and years ago when I was a resident, that was back in the day when you worked at the 100-hour work week was the norm. Wooden ships, Iron Man. Yeah. If you're tough, you'll stay So, Which was just absolute insanity if you think about the number of intellectual errors we made back then. But we had this one guy who would moonlight the one day off he had a month. He would go and moonlight somewhere. And we were covering three or four different hospitals as part of the residency, and he got in trouble with the case, and it went to trial and whatnot. And the guy said, well, look at this. All he had was a schedule from the one hospital. He said, look, you, you worked 10 other shifts that month plus this moonlighting shift. Don't you think that's too much? And he said, well, no, it only averaged out to like 40 hours a week or something like that. He said, but afterwards, the resident came to me, and he said he was one of my residency mates, and he goes, it's a good thing you didn't have the schedule from the other two hospitals. I had one day off the entire month when they added everything up. And this guy's, the, the plaintiff's counsel was very rightly saying, look, this guy's overextended. He's going to make errors. A couple of issues about working a lot of shifts, long shifts. One of them is that it gets you to hate your job. Yes. I know lots of doctors who work 12-hour shifts. And as they got older, they changed their department and now they're working eight-hour shifts. Absolutely. And none of those doctors that. will ever, ever, ever go back to a 12-hour shift. I know when I've been there too long because I'm very polite to the patients and I always open up with, hello, thank you for coming. What can we do for you today? When I've been there too long, the opening is, yeah, what do you want? <laughs> and as soon as you hear that come out of your mouth, yeah. you've been there too long. Go right. home. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, again, once again, I miss out on all the fun of Risk Management Monthly because I didn't get to go to New York like some people. You would think, you would really think that they don't like me at this point. So my job now is to do a summary of what these boys have talked about. And I've got to tell you, it's really interesting listening to this program as an outsider, as it were, for the last few months about what we could do better and what we do well. One of the things that has done very well, I think, is bringing these outside speakers. And it's something we should continue because I thought Al had some really interesting and provocative things to say that the usual trio wouldn't say. So let's go over some of the things that I learned uh, as way of emphasis about what was talked on this month's CD. And so one of the things that's really been interesting that's been happening in a few states is the idea of two different types of negligence. And this is very interesting. One which is sort of standard negligence, as it were, and one is wanton negligence. And a lot of places, in order to sort of do their tort reform as we try and move through this process, which may take us a long time, have thought of the concept that you really, really have to screw up in order to be considered negligent. You're there, you're working hard, you're trying to do the right thing, you're certainly not trying to hurt the patient, and something bad happens. Right now, just because something bad happens, you get sued. Wouldn't it be nice if you really had to show this doc really was screwing up, really made a mistake? Not that this doc missed a PE, which all docs miss, or this doc missed an appy, which all docs miss, but this doc really did something bad to the point that not only does he need to be sued or she needs to be sued, but we need to think about, you know, really investigating this further. Wouldn't that be better? Because right now, uh, you know, lawsuits are not really about trying to make the medical system better, although that might be, some people have argued, a sort of outcome of the way things are. But it's really not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is to compensate people and the purpose of it is to make lawyers rich and consultants rich. So uh, this is sort of a change in the way things are moving. And it's interesting that in somewhere like New Zealand, 
they're totally going to a bad thing happens compensate versus a lawsuit maneuver. So this is very interesting to hear about Texas and other places that are going this way. Another point that they suggested, and this is something that uh, you know really has to be continued to be pushed by AEM and by ASEP, and they have done really important things in the last few years, is that you should be tried by your peers. The expert witness should be a peer, not a retired pathologist, should be an actively practicing emergency doc. And that is increasingly how it's done. And in fact, it's very hard now, if I talk to my lawyer friends, it's very difficult for them now to put up somebody who is not actively practicing within any field, no matter what uh, is being sued. Uh, otherwise, the jury and the other experts and the other lawyers in particular say, hang on a minute, this is not right. So we continue to make great strides there. I like this. Then they talked about missed fractures. Now, this is very, very important, obviously. When you see a patient, you think they've got a fracture. You do an x-ray. You don't see a fracture. That doesn't mean there isn't a fracture there. We know that x-rays can miss you know, a significant percentage of patients with fractures. And in fact, when you look at the literature, the number is way higher than my uh, sort of expectation or my experience. You know, they'd said that 5 or 10% or more of fractures can be missed on plain films. Now, these are probably very small fractures. They probably don't mean much. But the important point is that if you think it's a fracture, if it looks like a fracture, then you should never tell the patient, you don't have a broken bone. You should tell them the way it is. Look, we've done an x-ray. We can't see anything today. Come back if you have further pain. Maybe I'll even splint you and get you checked in a few days because I'm really worried. Particularly that person who has a lot of pain, ongoing pain, and you press right on that one part of the bone and it really hurts. Then say, look, the x-rays don't show anything. We're going to have our radiologist check it tomorrow. And why don't we have you checked with your primary care person in a few days or your orthopedic surgeon just to be absolutely certain. If you do that, if you chart that, the chance that you will be successfully sued diminishes substantially compared to saying there's nothing there, the x-ray is negative, bye-bye. They also brought up a very important about what you say and what the patients hear can be two very different things. You say all that, what they hear is the doctor said there was no fracture. That's why charting is important. That's why discharge instructions are important to set the expectation. Also remember that these aren't bad people that you're looking after in your emergency department. They're very stressed. They're not remembering stuff. They may be remembering 10%. And so your written discharge instructions are important. That doesn't mean 20 pages, but very concise, specific, particularly with this missed fracture thing, which continues to be a problem. We also heard from Rick talking about one of our risk management experts that has now become a consultant on our program, that missed sepsis and misdiagnosis, mismanagement of sepsis is now a big deal. And we've heard this a number of times in the last few months on the series, and it seems to be going a little bit like this. There are now these accepted protocols, uh, early goal-directed therapy of sepsis, where you have to make the diagnosis early, where you have to treat the patient aggressively, where you have to follow some goals. And it seems to be wide open because we see so many of these people, early sepsis, late sepsis, bad sepsis, not so bad sepsis, for the lawyers to say, you didn't follow the protocol, a protocol that's been shown to work, you didn't do that, so therefore I have a wide open goalpost now to kick the football through to make some cash. So uh, what do we do with this? Know your sepsis guidelines for your hospital. Know early goal-directed therapy. Make the diagnosis early. 
These are very, very important issues. And so you should have a protocol, you should follow the protocol, there should be a nursing protocol, because it's now considered that there are so many sepsis patients, there are so many deaths here that we could prevent, and morbidity we could prevent if we do this well following protocols. And it's actually a pretty good disease to follow in a protocolized way. Once you've made the diagnosis, then we should do that. So get busy on that so that you can close that loop and get sued less and do better medical care. There was a really interesting discussion about how emergency medicine has changed. And I don't have time to go in this, and I'd like to talk with more people about it, but emergency medicine has really changed. Even in the short time I've been around here in emergency medicine in the U.S., I've been here 17 years practicing emergency medicine. And when I first started here in the U.S., it was definitely what you were taught and what you did was old person belly pain, don't know what it is, send them upstairs, they'll work it out. And it has changed an enormous amount to the point in many places, and I don't know if this is true everywhere, but in many places, the expectation is all about us, us getting as specific a diagnosis as possible. The old adage of all we need to work out is whether the patient needs to stay or go has really changed. That still makes for an efficient emergency physician, but really what has changed is not only do I need to know if you need to be admitted or not, I need to know whether you need to be admitted into the hospital surgical service, medical service, intensive care service. But not only that, I not only admit you for a surgical abdomen, the surgeons now have an expectation that I know pretty much exactly what the surgical condition is. The internists want me to diagnose exactly what the cause of shortness of breath is and to have honed in on the diagnosis and the therapy. And when we don't do that, we may not be getting sued over it but we are certainly getting a hard time from the people upstairs. And I think that that is actually something that we should be proud of, that as a specialty we have moved away from just being glorified triage physicians, which for a lot of things we really were, to now we are being recognized increasingly as real specialists in looking after patients and making diagnoses and admitting patients. And as they also talked about on this month, we've also got the recognition from that because now there is a lot of ER docs that are running very big time committees in the hospital that never happened 10, 15 years ago. And it's certainly happening here in California. They then talked about holding ICU patients and the number of studies that have come out in the last few years that have said holding ICU patients in the emergency department is bad. And Rick brought up the very important point. Maybe it is just a marker of the hospital is overwhelmed, that everybody, if you checked everybody in the hospital at that time, would be doing badly. If you're holding ICU patients in the emergency department for a long time, more than just a few hours, you can show through very difficult methodology, and people would criticize it, but it seems to show that they do worse, that critically ill ICU patients do better when they have one-on-one -on -one nursing with an intensivist who knows all the things that are new about looking after this particular disease. And I think that absolutely makes sense. When I am critically ill, my family is critical ill with sepsis, I want you to start the stuff in the emergency department, I want you to do the early goal-directed therapy, but I'd also like to get to an ICU where there's not lots of distractions, where people can run my vents in a very expert manner, and I'll probably do better if there is that intensive therapy. So that means we've got to get beds upstairs, that means we've got to move patients out of the emergency department, so use it in your favour. Use it by saying, you've got to get us beds upstairs, we've got to move these sick people upstairs, we can't hold them in the emergency department, it's not good emergency department care, we can't care for the people out in the waiting room, and these people that I'm trying to look after and be an intensivist, and also the family practice guy and the OB and do all this other stuff, I can't do it, the nursing staff can't do it, you've got to get us beds upstairs, let's move them.
Handoffs we talked about, and we've talked about it many times on this series, handoffs are never simple. When you're handing off a patient, it is a very high risk time, and so you should do it in a formalized manner. We talked about it in the last few months. Go to the bedside with the other physician, talk to the patient, get introduced, find out what's going on, lay hands on them. It's not something you want to do. You first get to work, there's 15 patients waiting, and you've got to pick up six or eight patients. You just want to get moving and not bother with it. But it is a very high-risk time, so spend the time. And if you're the doc leaving, you just have to get used to the fact, and everybody knows this far better than I do, you have to get used to the fact that you have to stay around for a while and help out. That's just part of the job. Greg then talked about a couple of really interesting cases, and the real take-home points from these cases were that CT scan is not perfect. If you have a person comes in right lower quadrant do a CT scan and it's negative, could they still have appendicitis? The answer is absolutely yes. The answer from the literature is absolutely yes. None of these studies is perfect. Even in the best hands, you're going to miss a percent of these people with appendicitis. Depending on who you read, you might miss 1%. Other studies show you might miss as many as 10%. And then you have to go from those studies to your hospital with your radiologist. How good are they? And how good was the study in terms of the prep and all the other stuff that's going on and the patient's body habitus? You're going to miss a percent of patients who have appendicitis. So if they look like appendicitis, smell like appendicitis, feel like appendicitis, CT negative, you have a difficult decision to make. And Al brought it up. It's very difficult in some hospitals to get them admitted. But uh, if you don't admit them, make sure you bring them back in six or eight hours. Or if you're convinced that that's what it is, send them upstairs, have the surgeon see them, have the surgeon come in and see them. Know that CT scan absolutely misses appendicitis even when it's visualized. Even when it's visualized. They talked about uh, the paranoid patient comes to your emergency department. You know, is delusional, is psychotic, is maybe suicidal. You've got to get them in. You've got to get them looked at. You've got to bring them back as soon as you can because these patients can go out and hurt themselves or other people. It's not okay to just leave them languishing. Now, obviously, there's systems problems here. We're talking about malpractice cases where this came up. Most of the time, this is not your fault, not your nursing staff fault. It's your systems problem. You would bring them back if you could. You would do that. But we have a systems problem where we need to continue to fix these. Try and pick out those highest risk patients. Try and pick out, and just remember, these are a high risk group of patients. That paranoid patient is very high risk. Consider them sort of like an MI. Consider them very bad until you fully assess them. And then uh, patient refills, patients seeking narcotics. And now this is really difficult. We need to do an entire tape on this and we need to get real world on this because it is absolutely true. On the one hand, you'll speak to some people and say, no, none of these people are faking. Yes, they should come in. Yes, they should get a full assessment. Yes, you should give them all the narcotics in the world and be nice to them and do all this stuff. And then there's the rest of us that's saying, no, there's a percentage of these people that are just working you and they're very good at working you and it drives you crazy. But you have to come up with a plan. And your plan is either to be a wall, and that's you know bad if you're always a wall. There's some, some of people who plan on just giving it out, doling it out, and that can be a problem. You can get into trouble with your local state health department if you do that. But there has to be some kind of plan. And often there has to be a plan for your emergency department because it's the same people coming in over and over and over again. And if you can have some kind of protocol for your patient in the emergency department. For example, when I was a resident at UCLA, a huge number of patients who had migraines or sickle cell or other real diseases mixed in with a lot of people who were just addicts who came there for drugs. And our plan that we'd come up with for a lot of these people was three shots of Demerol and if uh, that didn't hold you, upstairs and got admitted. 
you know, you're going to come up with your own plan, but it's important to have a plan because, you know, it's these patients, it's these scenarios, it's these difficult uh, interactions that you have that really destroy you after a shift, at the beginning of a shift, the end of a shift, that make you not want to come back the next day. So much easier if you have some agreed-on protocolized plan for an individual patient or for a type of scenario like this, they do that you can just follow. And even if you don't agree with it, just follow it. It takes the stress away. Fighting with these patients, worrying about whether you're doing the right thing, whether you're giving out too many narcotics, not enough narcotics, really can drive you insane. And again, there are systems issues that can be worked out. Systems issues that can be worked out for the hospital, for you, for the pharmacy, for the primary care people, if you're lucky enough to have these people followed. Systems issues that can really fix this. And then shift length. Shift length and liability. We don't want to go there. We don't want to say that a shift is too long. And if you do more than that, you should get sued. That's absolutely not true. It depends on your age. depends on the acuity of your patients. It depends on where your hospital is. It depends on the backup. It may be appropriate to do a three-day shift in your little ER that doesn't see many patients. It may not be appropriate to do more than 12 hours in your emergency department because it's so busy. That is not something that we can talk about, but it is something that is obvious. At some point, the shift is too long. The patients are too sick. You've worked too hard. You have to decide. Your group has to decide. Look, I thought this was a really, really good risk management monthly. Lots of pearls there. A lot of discussion. A lot of disagreement between uh, the faculty. Hope you enjoy it. And we will speak to you again next month. So on behalf of Rick Bucata and Greg Henry, myself, Mel Herbert, and our very, very uh, special guest, Al Sacchetti, who I've got to tell you is a fantastic ER doc working in the trenches every day. Thanks for listening to Risk Management Monthly. And now... Let's do wine of the month. We're running out of time here. Well, let's get to the wine of the month, Greg. Oh, wine of the month. We are again staying home. The euro is high. The dollar is low. So drink locally. We're going to Washington State, and we're going to have 2006 Covey Run Chardonnay. This is Columbia Valley. At 9 bucks a bottle, you can't beat it. The wine spectator says, this is good. So buy it. It's big, it's cheap, got a great taste, and, you know, I've been buzzed on this several times. It's worth it. Also, 2006, Columbia Valley, the state of Washington's doing all right. There's one called Washington Hills Chardonnay, and if you like the price on the last wine, you're going to love this one because it's 8 bucks a bottle. I like it. Now, we're going to throw in another one just to keep everybody happy. Israel is coming up in the wine business. It's grown in the promised land, and as you know, the only problem with the promised land is no one can decide who it's been promised to. But they have a red wine there called a Chateau Golan, you know, of the Golan Heights fame. It's a Cabernet Sauvignon. This has got 90 and 92 ratings in the Wine Spectator, and at 12 to 15 bucks a bottle, this is terrific. Well, that's great. Al, you want to do a yingling beer or something to that? Yeah, I was just going to say, in New Jersey, nine bucks a bottle, that's what you get for a wedding. You know, that's like the top of the end. It's more than $3, and if it doesn't have a screw cap and it come in a paper bag, we're not interested. Okay, so this is the July issue of Risk Management Monthly. Al, I want to thank you for participating, Guys, Greg, as always. very entertaining. I do want to acknowledge somebody who's a little special. Today is my 38th wedding anniversary. I'm in New York. My lovely wife is in Los Angeles. And I just want to say thanks, Diane. You've been a great partner for a long time. And I want to acknowledge it because we are 
often separated doing these kinds of things, and I wanted to do another 38. Yeah, I know your wife well, and quite frankly, Rick, you don't deserve a partner that good. <laughs> Bye-bye right. for all. I would say congratulations to Diane as well. See you guys. Bye-bye.